This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. The topic of this um, panel is on interventions for healthy longevity, and we'll begin um, with Dr. Cummings. Uh, I'm going to talk about pills. <laughs> so that's the title, and the conclusion is don't be fooled. Okay, so now, start with a survey. How many of you take a supplement of any sort? Okay, I'm in trouble. <laughs> But it's pretty typical. Surveys show that around 70% of people at any age are taking a supplement of some sort. And uh, those of you who've just casually walked the aisles of GNC or any drugstore, you can see how many of them are promoted for longevity. There are longevity supports, there are longevity stimuli, there's even one called purple longevity. I wonder that, what that means. But so many of them are being promoted for what we're talking about here today, longevity. I want to go through some of the history, some of the evidence, and then how to be a smart consumer. Okay, so now, uh, vitamins, most of the supplements contain, started in 1916 with this, with Vitomin was the name of the tablet. It was made of yeast and all sorts of minerals. And it was promoted as being essential to survival and important for energy. Uh, energy, did, did you hear that? Mitochondrial support? Okay, we'll, we'll, maybe we can find some of the old vitamin pills to test. Now, since then, over the years, we've had development of many other vitamins. Vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, and the F I'll take for folate. And uh, so... I come back to those in, in, in just a minute, but one of the things that, um, uh, uh, that you'll see when you see a vitamin or any other supplement promoted is that studies show. Anybody seen that? Studies show. Studies show. Well, they don't really tell you what those studies are, and the studies may be mouse studies. It might even be worm studies. And in humans, they are generally what we call observational studies. Now, this is really the central part of my talk, is what observation means as opposed to randomization. It's really critical, and so now I want to use an example. Uh, we'll use vitamin D, and I'll come back to vitamin D a little later on to make some more enemies in here. Vitamin D has been studied, including in our studies, many studies that show that people who are taking vitamin D live longer than those who are not taking vitamin D. And that, so that's evidence that vitamin D promotes long life. Now, if you look at that more closely, those people who take vitamin D are people who are typically better educated, have better lifestyles, are different in many ways from those who don't. So, in fact, it is no surprise that those who are taking vitamin D live longer and have a lower incidence of diseases because they're different from those who don't take vitamin D. That also turns out to be true, by the way, for your level of vitamin D. Many of you, I'm sure, have had your level measured. And levels are related to health, so those with poorer health tend to have 
lower levels of vitamin D for reasons we can talk about in the hallway. So that's, um, that's really interesting. So how do you take care of that? How do you, you know, get good evidence instead of this biased evidence? And that's something called randomization. I don't want to bore people here who know what randomization is, everybody who knows what randomization is. Okay, we've got to go over randomization. Uh, randomization basically is a way of balancing so that one group has the same education and lifestyle as the other group the one group taking D and the other one taking the placebo. You do that by randomly assigning people to one group or the other. They have no control over it. It's placebo-blinded so that, you know, you don't know what you're taking and therefore the results can be trusted. The results are rigorous. The results are not biased or confounded by having more people with better health in one group than in the other group. It's the same. So now let's talk about what we learned. Instead of the observational studies of vitamin D showing all of these benefits, there have been very large, very rigorous, very well-done studies of vitamin D now. Probably more than, I think, I've read all of them, and I think we're up to about 50,000 people in trials. The most common dose of 2,000 international units per day. And these have been very consistent in their results. Vitamin D does not reduce mortality. It does not reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. It does not reduce the risk of any disease. It doesn't reduce the risk of kidney disease. I can keep going along, but the list is very long. There is no disease for which vitamin D at that dose has been shown to be beneficial. And that's even true in people whose levels are really low to start with, who've got so-called deficiencies. Bringing into question, gee, what does that mean? If it doesn't work for anybody, why do you get your vitamin D level measured? Because it's not going to be a guide to whether it's going to benefit you or not. Okay, so um, one other thing to worry about, though, is that there are harms. So with vitamin D, you get a dose of 4,000 a day, and randomized trials are pretty clear that that increases your risk of falls. 4,000 units a day or more reduces your bone density and reduces its bone quality. So not only is vitamin D not effective at one dose, at higher doses it may actually have harms. And if you go to the store and you look at the supplements, you go online, it's common to find vitamin D in 5,000 units and 10,000 unit pills and, and capsules. So things are being sold out there in the stores that that are, in fact, demonstrably harmful. Now, this same kind of thing, these large randomized trials, have been done for vitamin A, for vitamin B, for vitamin C, for vitamin E, for uh, for folate, and for multivitamins, and then putting them together as antioxidants. So all these big trials have been done for all of these, and they don't reduce mortality. Okay, well, that's... um, it's depressing, but also even more depressing. Several of them, <laughs> like vitamin A and folate, for example, have adverse effects. Folate, low incidence, but prostate cancer. Vitamin A in smokers, lung cancer as an adverse effect. So not necessarily are these things that are, gee, if it's a vita, it must be good for me because it's a vita. No, it might actually occasionally have harm. So, um, so what, oh, and by the way, A lot of the stuff that you're hearing now, NAD and other uh, biological-based supplements, 
We simply do not have the randomized trials to support taking them, but I also worry because they're potent that they may also have adverse effects. So now what, what should you do? Well, I, I would say, summarize, that if you are, um, that probably the best thing you can do is to walk or to bike to that GNC or vitamin stelling store. <laughs> but do not buy anything on any of the shelves because you'll have gotten all the benefit from getting there. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Judy Pa. I'm a neuroscientist locally here at UC San Diego, and I lead a research lab and a large center on Alzheimer's prevention. So that's what I'll be speaking about for the next few minutes, and I think that's a nice segue from what we just heard about. So we now know, and I think many in the audience are aware of this, and we've heard a little bit about it over the last um, few sessions, that there are several modifiable lifestyle factors. So I like to think about the age-old adage of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of treatment. And I won't speak about it too much today, but I think many of you have heard in in the recent news about some of the recently approved Alzheimer's treatments that are medication-based, and they're actually infusion-based, in which you would need to go to a specialized center. Um, While there is a lot of excitement around them, they do come with a number of risks, and this includes brain hemorrhaging and brain swelling. So we really like to think about prevention. Let's get us to a point where we don't have to worry about those treatments because we don't have the pathology in the brain. So we now know there's 13 to 15 modifiable lifestyle factors, modifiable risk factors, and you've heard a number of them today. Exercise, get on your bike, walk, get out there and get some fresh air. Um, There's several others, and I won't list all of them, but they are really nicely delineated through the lifespan. So we have early age education that we've heard about. We have middle age risk factors that are modifiable, meaning that you can change those. And I see many, many in the audience who fit this middle age, age range. And these are things like being active, having cognitive stimulation of the mind, engaging in activities that um, will benefit you. Um, There's also ones tied to sleep, depression, hypertension treatment. And so, um, excuse me for just a moment. I'm Steve Hornberger, uh, an MSW and uh, the director of the, um, co-director of the SDSU Social Policy Institute as well as the co-director of the the more recent SDSU Center for Excellence in Aging and Longevity. And um, the SPI mission is to bridge academia with business, government, and community to improve individual, family, and community well-being. Uh, Much like everybody else has said earlier, for us, we see community and and well-being as very well tied together. And out of that effort, what we did was um, we began in 2020, we began a year-long collaboration with over 25 stakeholders from government, business, community, CBOs, and older adults to say, how could we um, create healthy aging across the lifespan? 
And we met for a whole year, and the two big goals that we came up with was one, that SDSU become an age-friendly university, which means that uh, we're making a, a, a commitment to lifelong learning for students, faculty, administrators, and com- alumni and community members. And two, that we would create the Center for Excellence as a way to continue the work that we had begun and learned about in terms of how do we address the current and emerging challenges that impact older adults, caregivers, and communities in in terms of health and well-being. It's back to you. I am so sorry. So a little bit of personal news is that I tore my ACL trying to be physically active, and I've, my surgeon was calling because I'm trying to get surgery, so I am so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. The, the worst possible timing. So um, excuse me for that. So I was, I was describing 13 to 15 modifiable lifestyle factors, and some of those are exercise, diet, depression, and sleep. How many in the room can have noticed changes in their sleep? Yes, this is, this is a big problem. One that changes over the lifespan, but also one that we notice a lot in, um, as we age and also in women. And so our lab has really honed in on... Um, a few of these modifiable lifestyle factors. So we know that it's difficult to get folks to change anything about their lifestyle. How many of you have gone to see your GP lately and they've told you to eat better, to walk more, to take your medications, to perhaps take some supplements? And so the way that we've tried to think about it is to really hone in on one or two of these modifiable lifestyle factors and do a deep dive into what it's doing to the brain. So one of the reasons why we really like exercise as a modifiable lifestyle factor is because we know what the brain changes are. So for a long time, we thought we were born with all of the brain cells or neurons that we would have. We now know that there's a process called neurogenesis that happens throughout the lifespan, and that when we exercise, we have an increase in neurogenesis in a key part of the brain. And this is the brain, this is the part that's selectively vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease, the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain, deep in the brain, and we have one on each side of the, um, one on each hemisphere. And so we know with exercise that not only do we have increases in brain cells, we also have increases in um, gray matter density in the frontal parts of the brain. So we have our neuron, and we have synapses, and within the synapses, we have um, dendritic spines, and we know that they plump up. So you can almost imagine a neuron or a brain cell becoming stronger and stronger. The other modifiable lifestyle factor that we focus on a lot in our research is sleep. And the reason for this, and this comes from animal models, and it has now been corroborated in human work, is that we know that when we sleep, we actually clear brain pathogens, And that's one of the key reasons why sleep is so important, and sleep is so important for function. So many of you have heard of amyloid and tau, or plaques and tangles. And there's been evidence both in animals and humans that when we sleep, we clear the plaques or the amyloid from the brain. So it's present in the brain. It gets cleared through the interstitial fluid, which 
drains into the glymphatic system and ultimately outside of the body. Um, and so these, these are two of the main risk factors that we focus on. But ultimately, if there's 13 to 15 modifiable lifestyle factors, we would like to think about combining these. And so in some of our work, and this was described a bit earlier with technologies, we've actually tried to think of creative ways to put these two together. So some of you may have um, seen our booth outside, and so we are actively engaging in a research trial now called our NeuroRider VR, which means that we're trying to pair the brain with the body in meaningful ways to try to improve brain health. And so we try to do physical activity and cognitive activity at the same time in a virtual environment. So this is all run in the lab. It's our way to marry, to marry neuroscience, technology, and medicine together in meaningful ways. So we might hear about, well, you know, go outside, go for a walk, get on your bike and bike around. And then also don't forget to do your cognitively stimulating activities. So some of you may be learning a new language. You may be learning to play a musical instrument. We've actually tried to pair these two together, and it's neuroscientifically linked. So when we exercise, we know that the brain is getting healthier. We can feel the blood churning through our body. It's also churning through our brain from that. That we can then teach the brain new things to do in this virtual environment. And so we actually have designed a video game in which you go through and you bike through a natural world and you retrieve animals through Sal's sanctuary. And so it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a fun task. Um, we've done it and completed it now in a pilot study with um, several younger individuals and several older individuals, and everybody reports really enjoying it. And it's all done in our research lab at UCSD. So if anybody is interested in participating in this, please come talk to me, or you can also talk to the team outside. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. You good? All right. Yeah. ACL still, still needs to My part of the panel is to how do you go from all of this knowledge in terms of science and medicine and, and doctors to the community? And so, uh, as I was saying, we created the Center for Excellence in Aging and Longevity, and it had four key elements. One was research and policy. One was workforce. One was uh, spearheading the AFU work at SDSU. And the fourth one was longevity. Now, in terms of research and policy, we created a a regional area aging research network. Uh, That network of um, researchers from around San Diego created an inventory of aging-related projects that were already underway and created values and principles for how research should be done and who should be involved. Out of that, um, we now have uh, three co-chairs. We have uh, Kathy Ayers from UCSD, um, Stephanie Rios-Corno from SDSU, and Brent Wakefield, the CEO from Meals on Wheels. And the reason we did that was because we didn't want it to be just an academic pursuit of research and knowledge, but rather how do we take that knowledge and begin to implement it in a community so that the RON is very focused on community-centered and community-driven research and knowledge building. In terms of workforce, we are... Uh, we received a grant from the Cal Groves grant from the California Department of Aging to expand and diversify caregivers because, as many of you know, uh, caregivers are, 
or indeed and much shortage, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and so we created a partnership with the San Diego Public Authority that does all the certifying for in-home services and support caregiving, uh, the Glenner Center, and Stepping Higher, as well as Determined Health, because we wanted to be able to have a broad um, collaboration across some key stakeholders that do very different things. And um, it's called the San Diego... Um, caregiving connections. You can go on our website and see it. Um, and what we have done, we're four months ahead of the deliverable that we're supposed to do. We're, um, we've had over 150 people register and take courses that have had over 600 hours of training. The training is 80 hours virtual and 20 hours in person um, for both care, paid caregivers as well as family caregivers. So family caregivers can take these trainings so that they can learn more skills for how they want to help the person that they're caregiving for. If someone who's a, an unpaid family caregiver is interested, uh, the, the public authority will expedite so you can become eligible to become a paid caregiver because, as people have said earlier, caregiving is a, has a real toll on both you financially but also emotionally. And the piece that we've done that's unique in our in our caregiving connections is we created a a peer support person so that they can help people in terms of understanding what's happening, be able to apply the knowledge, but also and where to find and navigate for resources because it's tough doing this alone and it's tough doing it on your own. Um, and so that's a way that we're trying to, again, take what we know works and bring it to populations as uh, – um, oh, I'm, I'm missing her name – the longevity – Center described how that we wanted to make sure that it spread for everybody, not just um, some of the people or the you know the top ten percent. I'm proud to say that 97 percent of the people that have uh, completed all this training and are now certified are 97 uh, people of uh, uh, black and, and uh, indigenous people of color because that's the most underserved grouping. Um, in terms of the age-friendly work, we are already continuing to do that. Uh, we're creating uh, activities and groups. Um, we created a, a, a student organization called the Intergenerational Gerontology Alliance. That's a mouthful. That's made a student-recognized organization on campus that's made up of undergrads, graduates, and community members to talk about gerontology issues that they're concerned about. And the last time I met with the lead, they said, Steve, do you realize that there's no place on campus where older adults and students can just hang out? And I said, no, I didn't know that. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? So that's my mission to take care of now, to figure out, because if we accept the idea of intergenerational sharing and each of us getting value from the others, then we need to have places where they can just be rather than just where they're as in a class or just in a research project. And last but not least, we're doing longevity. And that's uh, we're partnering with national, state, and local experts on this issue, and, uh, and, and in particular, Dr. Allison Moore, who everybody knows and everybody respects. So she's a great partner, and you're all very lucky to have her with you in, at the Stein Institute. But in terms of longevity, what, we do, what we're really focusing on is doing the age-friendly community work that... Um, how many of you know about age-friendly community work? Oh, we've got more work to do. Um, 
It's a project that we partner with AARP, and um, you'll have a chance to meet uh, Joe Garbanzo a little later because he's in the next panel. And basically, we go into a we've we've now done it in six cities, and we're going to continue with two more coming up. But basically, and I never remember all eight, so I have to read it. And I and I and I remembered that having a picture is very impressive. Um, so. We have, uh, AARP has been doing this nationally. There are over 400 places in America that are listed as age-friendly communities. And there's a process to it, but it basically addresses outdoor spaces and built environment, transportation, communication, civic participation, respect and social inclusion, health services and community supports, social participation, and housing. And so what we do is uh, we put together an online and in-person survey. We, already, we have thousands of surveys where people tell us what's working, what's good, what they need. Out of those surveys, we then create over 30 different le- learning, listening sessions in over five languages because we want people to be able to uh, participate in their language. And we put together what's called action planning, and then we go back and have planning sessions with the community members. Out of that, we then come up with, here's our goals and, and, and activities for 10 years, what we want to do in the next 18 months, what we want to do in the next four years, and what we want to do six to, you know, five to 10 years, because everything can't get done right away. That gets presented to the elected officials. They put it out for public uh, comment. And then they vote on it. Now, the reason that's important is because when your elected officials uh, vote and accept an action plan, it becomes part of the city's master plan. And that means that every year they have to acknowledge and say what you, how you did this year on these goals that you have for your city. Um, and that gives a, a way for the community members to stay and hold their, account, uh, their elected officials accountable. You said you were going to do this, 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 what's happening? And I think that that is a way to not only keep it community-driven and centered, but also driven, because ultimately elected officials come and go. But we, the community members, are the ones that are there. And if we've identified issues that need to be addressed, then that's what we need to focus on. Over all of these sessions and and, uh, surveys, three big things show up every time. Transportation, housing, and social connection. In terms of transportation... um, the question of accessibility, uh, timeliness, how often it comes, and convenience becomes a very big issue. And um, an example of something that I think is very forward-setting, Chula Vista leveraged some public and private money and created CV Shuttle that is free for anyone over 55 They've been doing it for a year now. They have over 10,000 rides where people come, and the ridership is increasing every month because not only will they – you can call them either with a phone or or a call center or an app. They usually show up with less than 15 minutes later. They will take you to where you have to go, and then they will wait for you until you finish, which is the big thing because if people take Uber or Lyft, often the problem is they drop you off and they leave you, and then you're stuck. And so this is a very, you know, older adult-friendly process. Every time we talk about it, people say, how do we get that in our community? I'm not sure how you do that. Um, but the people in, in Chula Vista are very excited about it. In terms of housing, um, I think when Joe speaks later today, 
uh, you should drill him about that because AARP is doing some great work in terms of advocacy and regular, regulatory change. They're the ones driving the ADO, ADU um, regulations and making it simpler, but they're also doing some very other things to make it easier for uh, developers to get started because one of the problems is what's the regulatory hurdles you have to go through to build more housing. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be partnering with um, uh, with Meals on Wheels to create an intergenerational shared housing where we're going to be partnering with older adults who have extra rooms to have graduate students come and live with them so that at below market rates and offer some socialization while they're there. Um, I think it's a really good way to help more graduate students understand what older adult life is like, but it's also a way for older adults to have access to younger people because whenever we do these age-friendly things, uh, people love it. They get excited. Inevitably, somebody comes up to me and says, Steve, this is really good. I go, thank you. I'm glad you like it. said, but I'm tired of only talking to old people. Where are the young people and how do I get them involved? And I go, Good point, and that's one of the reasons why we created that student organization, because we know that if we're all involved, we're all going to do better. And then finally, in terms of social connection, um, you know, we've all heard the Surgeon General report. You know, I saw a, a Harvard study that said longevity, uh, loneliness kills. It's m- m- had a bigger impact in terms of alcoholism or uh, drug abuse. That's pretty scary. And so what we're doing is we created an intergenerational call hub where we're, where we're recruiting older adult community members and students to do make calls, social calls, to older adults who have been identified as at risk for isolation or loneliness and or just want somebody to call them. And the Determined Health is uh, our partner on that, and they've got data that says a 15 to 20-minute call for over a four, an eight-week period, improves the callee's health status. That it's just that simple that people want to be acknowledged, they want to know something, they want to know somebody cares about them, and the matching is very simple. Some shared interest, time availability, and language spoken. And if any of you are interested in to either be the caller or the callee, see Michelle Matt, Matter. She's probably upstairs because she couldn't get in earlier, or me, and we'll because we're recruiting actively to do it again. And then finally, um, and I was really pleased to hear earlier about people talking about Pablo's experience because one of the things that we're now doing is working with uh, Hope, healthy outcomes from positive experiences. It's a project that Tufts Medicine's uh, Center on Medicine has been doing. It's been it was developed for younger children and their families, but we think it's going to have real applicability for older adults because it's based on simple premise, four building blocks, relationships, uh, equitable opportunities to, to meet in safe spaces. Uh, I never remember the fourth one. And the last one is um, emotional growth through learning, social, and emotional competences. These are the things that we know make a difference, and so it's going to be fun to see Fun's probably the wrong word. It's going to be important to see how we can manage that and how we can translate what was work, what's viable for young children and their families to older adults because we're still in family. And I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do because when all is said and done, our goal is to make sure 
that healthy aging across the lifespan happens so that we all have the, an equitable opportunity to enjoy the, liberty, the, the longevity dividend. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. So what I've got from this presentation is no vitamins. Yes, engage in behaviors that we know can improve brain health and other forms of health, and ideally doing more than one at a time. And finally, really community supports to um, improve, well, really to do even more in some ways, like get together with different generations, have support within your community, um, have safe housing Good transportation, and so quite a range of um, range of things. Is there any way that you know? So hearing the no pills is controversial. I have so many patients who take a bunch of pills, including many I've given them. Um, <laughs> how do you? How do you? Is there a way to really? I'm going to say empower uh, older adults to. Ask tough questions about yeah, what should I be taking. Look for the word randomization. It's really easy. I mean, if, if it's not randomized, then it's being done by people who are not rigorous. And the things you will see coming out of this uh, group, the science here, will, will always be rigorous. So you just look for it. If it's not there, if it's mouse or it's study show, uh, it, you've also got to worry that there might also be adverse effects that haven't been discovered because it wasn't rigorous. And um, Dr. Pa, question. So you're doing this intervention, and it, it sounds wonderful, and hopefully we'll have positive results. One of the things that we was mentioned earlier is the challenge of, if it does turn out well, how do you keep it going? That's always the age-old question, right? For any of us to do interventions in experimental settings, how do you support keeping it going, maybe partner with Steve and do some community <laughs> partnered work, something like that. But love your opinion on that. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I will say that our trial is randomized. <laughs> <laughs> and so ours is a randomized control trial, which means that it has a control group and folks are randomized into one of several different types of groups that are getting different treatments. And the goal of these is really to understand, is one treatment better than another? Is it worthwhile doing X over Y? And it's these types of very rigorous, scientific, randomized trials that allow us to get at this. And the question, Dr. Moore, that you're asking is really, well, right now it's laboratory-based. It requires engineering, neuroscience, um, and a, a, a wide variety of um, disciplines to be able to do it. How do you then translate that into the community? How might that be available? And that's when we get from these lab-based randomized controlled trials to the community. And to, it's called dissemination and implementation. It's called these DEI or DI types of trials. They're challenging. We're actually, we've completed a pilot on this. We're running a larger study now, but we're already starting to think about how to get it more into the community we, UCSD is in La Jolla, that's far for many of you, and we oftentimes hear that it's, it's challenging to get out to these different locations. What we're now trying to do is think about how to get interventions like this, and not this one yet, because we want to show that it works first before we try to offer it to individuals, 
But how do we get interventions like this that require these different types of technologies and expertise out into the community? Well, we're forming partnerships in the community at different community centers um, down in the South Bay, more into the East County, and putting it into the community as opposed to asking individuals to come to us. And once we're able to do that, then we can start to form new partnerships and we can offer these types of technologies in your neighborhoods, maybe possibly even with a mobile bus where we would drive it around. And this is something Dr. Molina is working on is to then have a mobile bus and drive it into your community and park it there for the day and invite you to come over to our, our little van and our bus and um, try out the intervention and then try to go from there and figure out how to disseminate it more widely. But first we need to show efficacy or that it works through these randomized trials. Oh, this one I could answer. So we now know about healthy eating, exercise, social connectivity, mental activity, sleep. What about the increase in usage among older populations of CBD and THC? (laughs) (laughs) So um, probably everyone's heard about the rise in the use of um, formerly called marijuana, now called cannabis. (laughs) In the population, and uh, it, we're still uh, have, we have we're doing randomized control trials now to better understand its effects on health. The big problem for me uh, in this space is that what is it? There are so many combinations of amounts of CBD and THC and various um, cannabis products and different types of cannabinoids, and so it's a very much black box in terms of what it is, and so there. And also, historically, it had been very difficult to get access to formerly marijuana and now cannabis to even test it. So the field's behind because of these barriers. But there are a large number of randomized controlled trials now out there to better understand the effects of um, products containing THC and CBD on your health. And it's further complicated by the forms of use. So smoking uh, cannabis is a very different health effect than taking it as a gummy or a topical. And so understanding all that is still needs to be done. Um, yeah, so, Moore, yeah. It might also be important to think about why is there a demand for this, the variety of these products? Yeah. Well, we know actually for older adults, the main reasons are you probably can come up with them pain, problems with sleeping, and anxiety are the top three, probably among all age groups, but in older adults specifically, pain and sleep. And there's not great, you know, I'm going to say usual ways to treat that, certainly not with pills. And other means are harder. It's just the truth. Behavior change and things are just tough. So people want a way to address the problems that aren't easily solved um, with other means. So that's why people care. All right, moving on. Dr. Cummings, what about vitamin B12 deficiency in babies with vegetarian nursing mothers? Maybe out of power. All right, we got it too hard. Uh, Take take it. Yeah, okay. I I have no idea. Vitamin vitamin B12 deficiency is a disease. It's not something you take a supplement to prevent. People who have anemia of a certain sort, it's recognizable. Measurement of vitamin B12 can, can identify that it's low and then you need treatment. It's a pretty rare condition. And uh, vegetarians, 
I don't know the data, but maybe they're more. But vitamin D, vitamin B12 is also a supplement in foods, some foods. So, I, boy, I was in practice for 30 years in general internal medicine, and I think I recall one case of pernicious anemia, vitamin B12 deficient. So it's pretty uncommon and not a justification to take it as a supplement. Dr. Pa, do the 13 to 15 preventive lifestyle changes uh, or interventions still have positive or modifiable, that's what you meant, the modifiable um, uh, factors still have positive effects once someone is already experiencing memory decline? Yeah, thank you for that question. So these randomized control trials on these modifiable lifestyle factors, and there's some that have been done on exercise. There's some that have been done on cognitive training. So you may have received advertisements to sign up for this program or that program, and you pay $100 a year, and you get to play different types of games. There's been a number, diet as well. There's been a number of these types of trials, and um, they're sometimes in individuals that don't have any memory complaints. There's sometimes in individuals who think maybe they're starting to have early changes, and then they're worried because they have a family history. They saw their mother go through it. They saw their brother go through it. And then traditionally, a lot of the Alzheimer's disease clinical trials historically have been in individuals with early to moderate forms of dementia, likely due to Alzheimer's pathology. So we know that dementia is this umbrella term, and there's many different causes of dementia. So the most common one is Alzheimer's disease pathology. Another one is due to vascular disease or strokes that could happen in the brain. We've heard more and more about head injuries, and this is coming up with football players in in the NFL and college that have suffered multiple concussions. Um, But really, with these different types of trials, whether or not they're in individuals who are still sort of your garden variety, older adult, maybe starting to notice some early changes, or those that actually have a diagnosis of something called mild cognitive impairment that you may have heard of, MCI. Um, The data are mixed. You know, it kind of depends on who the population is, the duration. There's a lot that we don't know around exercise, and we get this question a lot. Well, you're telling me to exercise. How much should I exercise? What if I'm already doing this? Does this count? And then what type of exercise should I do? I really like yoga. Is that sufficient, even though it's lower intensity? Or should I be getting out to run a marathon or to sprint? These are all open questions. We're really trying to understand dose, intensity, type. And the key question that is on all of our minds is, for whom? For whom is this appropriate, depending on different types of risk factors? So I'm sorry that the answer isn't straightforward, but that there is a lot of data, especially around exercise and some data around cognitive training, that... Um, there are brain benefits, and we need to follow people over longer periods of time and um, more critically around these factors to understand who it, who it benefits. But based on the existing data, I would say the general view is that it's never too early and it's never too late. It's never too late to start. And I like to think about exercise as a bank account. Maybe I don't need it right now. Maybe that's why I went out and played volleyball and jumped and tore my ACL. (laughs) But I like to think about it as whatever I'm doing now is something I'm putting in the bank for later when my brain needs it. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.